Wine and Crime contains graphic and explicit content that may not be suitable for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Election Day is November 6th, so before we start the show, we just want to encourage you, if you have not done so already, to register to vote! It is your civic duty, and there are deadlines for voting registrations, and they do vary state by state. So go to USA.gov right now, look up your state, figure out when your deadline is, and register. And then don't forget to get your butt to the polls on November 6th. You can also sign up to get an absentee ballot if you can't make it that day. So mm-hmm. whatever you yep. got to do, it's easy if you know how to get that information. So USA.gov, do it. Treat your country. Treat it. You are listening to Wine and Crime, the podcast where three friends chug wine, chat true crime, and unleash their worst Minnesotan accents. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You betcha. Um, I- <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, I'm Kenyon. I'm Lucy. And I'm Amanda. And this week we have such a special episode. I'm so excited. Um Basically, what happened was we got connected with the Weather Channel. Have you heard of it? Um, (laughs) (laughs) And they had an excellent idea for a topic for us, and it is forensic meteorology. Whoever Um, knew that existed? uh, I know. I love it. It's now my new obsession. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) We got so excited when we found out this was a thing. forensic astrology is also a thing. (gasps) It's super cool. Um, Okay. I went down a rabbit hole. It's fine. What else is new? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, So in the course of the Weather Channel reaching out, uh, we scarred a man named uh, Brandon for life with our pitch for the gals go storm chasing as a show idea. Um, I don't know. I sold it perfectly. He just was not receptive to it. (laughs) He was shook. (laughs) In my opinion. Wouldn't hold your breath for that one, but um, you know, maybe we'll start a Kickstarter, but (laughs) the best thing to come out of this relationship is that we have a very special guest for today's episode, and she is Dr. Elizabeth Austin. Welcome. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Um, I'm going to hand it off. Well, first, we'll do our um, wine crime pairing. Amanda, what is our wine crime pairing for... Forensic meteorology. Yes. I am reviving a pairing of the past with Ooh. Restless Earth Grenache. Oh. One of oh. my faves. And we have done this pairing before, but this is actually a more recent vintage. This is the 2017, so it's not the exact same wine. Okay. Though it would take a very, very expert sommelier to be able to taste the difference. <laughs> and I am not about to tell you that I am that person. <laughs> um, this is a Wink Wine. So let me talk for a moment about our amazing sponsor, Wink Wine Club. They are mm-hmm. an online wine club that provides a smorgasbord Ooh. of wines. Mm. 
<laughs> that are delivered right to your door. These are beautiful, small batch, unique wines from all over the world, many of which are from California. And we have been partnered with them for a while now, and they've definitely opened my eyes to a lot of really cool varietals that I'd never tried before. And they're great if you are new to the wine world. So they do have a little flavor quiz that you can take on their website. And mm-hmm. our listeners get 20 bucks off their first order. So if you go to trywink.com forward slash gals, you'll get that 20 bucks off. And if you put four or more, so any number of bottles that's four mm-hmm. or more in your cart, they take care of shipping. So you're getting 20 this bucks is... off. And as long as you put four or more bottles in there, they're taking care of the shipping. It's like the greatest deal of all time. And it goes to your house. Welcome to the future. Yeah. Of the future wine. is now. Um, the grapes for this wine are grown in the high elevation of Santa Barbara Highlands in California. And this is literally the highest elevation of vineyards in that county. Um, it gets between 2,800 and 3,200 feet above sea level. level. So that's pretty freaking high. Um, this allows for a very specific climate for these grapes. It gives them more UV intensity, but the temperatures can drop throughout the day like rise and fall between 20 and 40 degrees of difference in temperature and it stays cooler just being at that high elevation for the most part so that protects the grapes from drying or early ripening from that like intense uv light which i thought was Mm, really cool cool. you're getting more sun intensity but in a cooler area in a safe way so counterintuitive to me yeah Um, These grapes were whole cluster fermented, which is one of our faves, (laughs) meaning it still had the skins of the stems and all that fun stuff, which adds unique flavors to the final product. Um, This bottle in particular is fruit forward with light, silky tannin. So it's not crazy tannic, but it has just enough to like balance out the fruit and just a hint of acidity. Um, It has a long lingering finish. And I think I just (laughs) described my perfect man. (laughs) I love a good lingering finish. Finish and a hint of acidity. (laughs) Me too. Um, Lola condoms. I'm just kidding. Uh, And at 14.2 ABV, it is literal perfection for this light to medium bodied Grenache. So it's a little lighter than Grenaches that we've tasted before, which I think is exciting. You are still going to get some of that super classic allspice, dark cherry, and pomegranate off of this bottle. Oh, that sounds so good. I, I love pomegranate. Shall we pop? Let's do it. Yes. Using, let's see if I can get this right, one of our nice pop winged corkscrews. Woo-hoo, you nice. did it. Available it. on our online store at wineandcrimepodcast.bigcartel.com. <laughs> get it on the fun. Get it you on the can, nice path. You can get it. You can treat yourself. You can also <laughs> carry around your bottles of wink wine in a wine and crime tote, tote bag. bag. <laughs> <laughs> While wearing we'll, a fucking we'll patriarchy sweatshirt now that we've entered into the cooler months. Mm. I was the most basic bitch in my FP sweatshirt the other day. Full on leggings, purple Uggs that I got in like 2006 <laughs> that I still have. <laughs> They're so Walking dirty. the dog around the neighborhood like I fucking own the place. Because you know what? I, I do. Pretty sure I wore those Uggs into that haunted house last you fall. Did. They're covered you did. in fake blood, probably. They, they are, and they're amazing. All right, I'm popping oh this God. out. Ready? All right. Oh. Nice. Whole cluster pop. Oh, whole cluster pop. <laughs> <laughs> 
All right, Lucy, what is uh, our background in psych with Dr. Elizabeth Austin and forensic meteorology? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Let's ask Dr. Elizabeth Austin, <laughs> forensic meteorologist. Yes. Uh, Dr. Austin is the head of a company called Weather Extreme, which she's going to tell us a little bit more about. And she is also the resident forensic meteorologist on the Weather Channel. So cool. And she appears on the show Storm of Suspicion, which we've gotten to see a full episode and it is Super cool. Dr. Austin is also a certified badass, in my opinion. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So, Dr. Austin, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and then about your company, Weather Extreme? Yes, I'm an atmospheric physicist, and um, the company Weather Extreme, uh, I founded back in 1994, so we're almost in our 25th year now, which is hard to believe. Congrats. congrats. That's amazing. Thank you. Thanks. And, And it's just a research and consulting company with all involving weather and climate and that sort of thing. Um, and for the Weather Channel, I'm not actually, I'm not sure if I'm their resident forensic meteorologist, mm-hmm. but I am appearing on eight of the, all of the eight shows of Storm of Suspicion, uh, which actually airs October, the first show airs October 7th, yes. uh, which is a Sunday at 8, eight uh, Eastern. So that's going to be great. It's so good. It's like forensic files, but like weather weather. style. Yeah, it's amazing. And I think that first episode airs the first Sunday after this podcast episode airs. We're recording it a little bit early, but I think, yeah, so just set your DVRs. Get ready to watch Storm of Suspicion. And then I, I know the series is going to be continue every Sunday night through November, so they can watch all eight episodes. And what's great, too, is each episode is focusing on just one crime, so they can oh, get cool. really in-depth. Yeah, mm-hmm. I love that. It's really interesting. Um, so I started researching a little bit about forensic meteorology, and I learned that it isn't always necessarily about crimes, mm-hmm. which was right. interesting. Right. A lot of times it isn't. Um, it can be, well, technically forensic meteorology means reconstructing weather for litigation um, purposes, but people use it loosely for all kinds of things. I mean, I even try and date old photographs for people if there's an unusual weather event in the photograph, uh, like snow in L.A. or something. Oh. Um yeah, it's so that, cool. I didn't even think about that. Yeah, yeah it's just amazing. Um, all the way through to different types of cases from plane crashes, big car pileups, boating accidents, ski accidents, mm. zip lining. I mean, pretty much you name, you name it and uh, weather may play a role or I'm brought in to say, uh, to describe the weather and it shows that it didn't actually play any role. Oh, okay. Mm. So you sense. could bust like people trying to uh, commit fraud for like insurance reasons and things oh. like that. Yes, I've, I've worked on many of those. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so let's talk about forensic meteorology in relation to crime, since that's like our primary topic on this show. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Besides drunken rants. Besides wine and feminism. Secondary yep. topics. <laughs> um, so you did mention some types of crimes that might be associated with forensic meteorology. Can you tell us... Um, Maybe some of the weirder crimes that you have solved with that, and then uh, what is your process to solving those crimes? Well, um, I, and by saying I solve the crime, I just, well, 
discuss the weather and how it plays a role in in aiding to with the investigation or the trial or whatever the case may be, wherever I'm brought in. Um, but, it's, you know, weather plays a role in not just, let's say, um, the commission of the crime, but it can also play a role in um, the investigation. Let's say investigators arrive on scene and it's super snowy and blowy and windy in the middle of the night. Mm-hmm. They may not be able to find all of the evidence. Um, evidence can get destroyed in a flood, for example. Um, so it could be quite difficult. And sometimes just getting to the crime scene can be difficult because of the weather. So it can affect it can impact, let's say, the commission of the crime or and or both um, the uh, investigation in terms of trying to solve the crime. And sometimes evidence can be buried for quite a long time before it's discovered. So is is there any small part of you that is excited about climate change? Because <laughs> oh it will present like, new challenges. What? <laughs> You'll be gainfully employed for like ever. You can yeah. you can confess. You can tell us you like climate change. <laughs> well, it certainly does open up a whole new area for uh, kind of risk assessment for for changing weather and climate. You know, so uh, because climate, there's that saying, climate is what you expect, but weather is what you get. So um, we are having changing climate, which is going to change weather in different locations. And so it does open up a whole new area. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Uh, What is your ideal weather event to investigate? Like, do you have a favorite? Do you like love typhoons or something? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, my favorite has probably to be uh, kind of anything related to extreme mountain weather, icing conditions, that sort of thing, just because that's my thing. Uh, we have other experts here at Weather Extreme and their expertise. Some people love tornadoes. Some people love hurricanes. Mine happens to be more related to uh, kind of mountain extreme weather. Is that because you grew up in, a, in an area in the mountains or is just a hobby, just a personal preference? Uh, well, you know, what's interesting is I grew up in uh, Southern California, <laughs> so <laughs> Very <laughs> but oh. I did ski a lot and uh, I've lived here in the Tahoe area now since 87. So I do love, I love the mountains and I love the extreme weather that, that occurs in the mountains, um, especially in the wintertime. Although I notice the older I get, the more I kind of crave beach time too. <laughs> so mm. <You need laughs> shoveling mix. snow gets a Exactly. Yeah. Um, it's just my thing too. Also, when I was in uh, graduate school, I really focused on kind of cloud physics, mountain meteorology, ice physics, that sort of thing. Wow. So, how does that differ um, in terms of evidence or recreating weather events of a super cold climate versus maybe somewhere more tropical or humid and hot? Well, it's interesting. I do plenty of all of it, actually. Um, whether it's hot, we, it's global, really. Forensic meteorology is global. That's uh, one thing that's really interesting to me, too, is um, learning about weather all around the globe and its impacts on people and crime. And actually, it, they've done plenty of research to show that when the weather heats up, especially in cities, they've done a lot of research, um, crime goes up. And, oh, uh, that's true. I have heard that. Mm-hmm. It, and it's true. It's been shown. So uh, definitely uh, there is a lot more crime 
going on when when the temperatures warm. Oh, is so that bizarre. is that because like folks, especially without air conditioning, are just like, oh, I gotta get out of here. I can't sit in this apartment. I gotta go. Be well, kill someone. <laughs> it's probably a combination of things. Um, people become more aggressive, they've shown. Um, and so that must be something with, with the heat. Uh, also, more people are out and about because it's warm, nice weather. So I guess there's more opportunity to commit crime. Mm-hmm. crimes. And then if you think about it in a city, people are all jammed in. And uh, when it gets really hot, I think it's just a combination of things. Yeah, absolutely. Sure. I've wanted we to kill both of my co-hosts in different heat waves. So, oh my god! <laughs> Good thing we're going to New Orleans. In this yeah, place. can't wait. <laughs> Watch out. Well, we oh, talked no. about. I don't remember what episode it was, but we talked about why all of that cra- like just crazy shit happens in Florida all of the time, <laughs> and part of it is about weather and like the proximity to the equator. And that has a lot to do with, like, socioeconomic, you know, statuses. And we had this whole th- – I don't remember what episode it was. But there are a lot of factors that relate to the proximity of to the equator, hmm. which was I thought was really interesting. Oh. Yeah, it must just do with the, deal with the heat, I guess, with mm-hmm. the temperatures. Mm-hmm. That's and also good. longer days. You're closer uh, – year-round longer days. Yeah. Obviously, you have quite long days in the poles during their summertime, but then in the wintertime, it's uh, extremely short. <laughs> Is that yeah, associated okay. with, with crime spikes, the longer days in the poles in the summers? I haven't seen any research on that, no. Okay. You might be the one to do that research. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Bring it on. <laughs> Just jotting that down. We're going to hear from her in like an <laughs> academic publication a year from now. You're like, oh my God. <laughs> so what would be an example of a weather event that you like that you it landed on your desk to go investigate and you're just like, oh my God, this is the worst. <laughs> the worst in terms of weather wise? To invest, your least favorite thing to investigate. Mm. Oh, thing, uh, anything that has to do with the death of a child or children. Those are very difficult. Um, yes, and usually those, yeah, those those are to me the the most difficult ones. Um, uh, yeah, but yeah. I think that you know it really runs the gamut in terms of the types of cases that land on on our my desk here and our desk desks here at the office because. Um, if you think about it, there's so many ways and so many factors that weather can play a role that I think people just don't don't realize in terms of like eyewitness visibilities, in terms of snow and ice, winds, um, flooding. Um, you know, I interestingly enough, um, the first episode of Storm of Suspicion has to do with Hurricane Harvey, and I'm not going to give it away, but I remember. Um, seeing on the news about the disappearance of, of the woman who the case is about mm-hmm. and telling my husband, oh, how interesting. I wonder if this was like a crime that was premeditated because of the hurricane and everything. Right. Um, but people... that was the, those were the first words out of my mouth to my husband. Mm. You nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, 
Um, we kind of touched on the fact that you investigate a lot of like frauds or attempted frauds that have to do with weather events. Um, can you sort of break down uh, what percentage of cases that come across your desk have to do with, say, homicide or fraud? Or is there like one particular type that is most common in your line of business? No, actually, um, it kind of... There's a little bit of everything um, from criminal and even even the insurance fraud. Sometimes it's in terms of the courtroom, it's tried usually civilly in the civil court, but it's in my mind still criminal activity. Um, but just plenty of everything, really, from insurance companies contacting us to attorneys to investigators, just depending upon what part of the case they're in. Um, so it, it really runs the gamut. There isn't just one particular case uh, type. Okay. Not anything that's like a majority. I, cause I, I ask because I think that I would think that, um, homicides like what happened in that first episode of storm of suspicion, um, or, you know, according to the previews, I suppose that doesn't really give it away. Allegedly. Uh, that, <laughs> yeah, an alleged, a hinted at homicide, um, that that would be not the norm for you to investigate. That's true. That isn't, that is not the norm. That's correct. Um, although weather does usually come into play in a lot of homicide investigations in terms of even just the timing of the time of death. Um, because that has to do a lot with temperature and the environment and the elements that the body was or wasn't exposed to. Um, so it, it does still play a role, even if I'm not brought into the case. Oh, okay. Okay. So, uh, what are some, sorry, Go ahead. I just have a question. When, when are you typically brought in by investigators? Is it like, you know, right off the bat, they're like, okay, we got to contact weather extreme. We're going to need their expertise on this or is it like once investigators have like hit the end of their ropes and they realize that they need your expertise both mm. it's both and it just depends on i guess the the case and the investigation and and how it's going and uh you know sometimes you know even if it's not a criminal case um we'll be brought in like literally hours after the incident or accident or event has occurred. So what are some biggest challenges um, to investigating weather events in your mind? Probably, uh, you know, the cases that aren't in the United States, those really represent more of a challenge because the data that are available, first of all, in the U.S., a lot of our data, most of it are available for free. Now, of course, as taxpayers, we're, we're paying for that. But um, overseas, it can be quite difficult to obtain the data. It can be very costly, and it can take a long time and jumping through different hoops. Um, and sometimes, like, for example, I was working, uh, I've worked many cases in China, but I was working a case mm. in China and trying to get data from them. And I wanted data from some of their stations on the ground. I, I had satellite data from the Japanese satellite, and I put in a request to the agency there, and it was, a, I don't know, about a week later, 
in the offices, and we're in Pacific time here, I get a call, and and they tell me it's someone from China calling. And we look at each other, and we realize in China it's like 2 in the morning, mm-hmm. and there's a lady on the phone speaking in English and asking me why I want the data, if I'm an attorney and that sort of thing. I'm telling her no and what we do. And in the background, I hear she's surrounded by at least two or three men yammering at her in Chinese. And then she'd speak to me in English. Well, why do you want the data? And then I'd give her an answer. And then they'd be saying, why. and then finally at the end, she was like, no, no data. You don't get any data. (laughs) (laughs) No data for you. Also no No, data for you. Please. <laughs> I, I ended up. I was able to obtain the data another through other sources, but. <laughs> okay, so highly um, guarded secrets. Yes. <laughs> so this is a two-part question. Ooh, I love. I these. guess three. We'll we'll call it three. Um, how often are you able to investigate cases overseas? One, two, do you actually get to go there or is it just sort of remote research? Mm. And then, well, the, okay, yes. yeah, answer those two first. <laughs> uh, a lot of our cases are overseas um, and especially the aviation ones because if you think about it, flying all over the world, how many aircraft yeah. are flying around the globe. I was going to say, because my case that I'm, that I'm covering for this episode has to do with an airplane. There's like a lot of forensic meteorology when things go wrong on an De- airplane. Yes. <laughs> Even just well, delays and stuff like that, that. That's that right. They'll look into it because, you know, they can lose a lot of money doing that. Absolutely. Yeah, What's that movie, um, Sully? The, gu- yeah. the pilot yes. who landed on the Hudson? Yeah. Mm-hmm. There were, for, uh, were there not forensic meteorologists in that m- movie? And I'm sure in reality in that case... You know, I actually haven't seen the movie, but, um, you know, luckily the weather was quite good on that day. Mm-hmm. Uh, and after the bird strike, you know, it was amazing what he was able to do. Yeah. He had co-pilot. Oh, okay. I'm thinking of two different movies. You're thinking yeah. of the one with Denzel Washington? Yeah, the one with drunk. Denzel Washington That's where not he's Sully. wasted, like, That's trying flight. to land a plane. That was <laughs> a good one. Okay, that was <laughs> that even That sounds better. like every Denzel Washington movie where he's just like... Some sort of badass, like professional, like pilot, hitman, CIA reverend. agent, or reverend, but also <laughs> with an alcohol problem. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so you said you do get to, to do cases all over the world, and that sometimes you get to go visit them in person. Sometimes. Uh, um, that's a little rare just because of the cost. And sometimes the location can be difficult to even get to, um, because it might be, you know, in a jungle or a mountainside. And so then I just rely upon photographs or uh, video of the accident scene. And, you know, those are always taken, of course, usually after the accident. Although sometimes now with more cameras around, um, sometimes the, uh, accidents and incidents can get, are caught on camera. Have you had time yet to really dig into the Amelia Earhart case? Oh, <laughs> good question. I haven't, but that really intrigues me. That that you know, now there's evidence that she uh, was on that island and lived there for quite a while, I guess. But <gasps> what are your so thoughts cool. on the Bermuda Triangle? <laughs> <laughs> no, really. Uh, you know, yeah, I don't know why you're laughing. That's an interesting. You know, I 
I don't know one way or the other because I myself haven't investigated it, but I, it sure does lead one to believe that there's something strange going on out there. Mm-hmm. But but I I don't know myself. All right, that was a very it's ghosts. It's well, a very ghosts. political politically correct answer. <laughs> we, will, we will have you back on once you've had time to prepare. I know that you probably have a lot of spare time. And... Oh, we are doing a Bermuda Triangle <laughs> Crimes episode. Yep, for sure. <laughs> It is my dream. <laughs> yep. And we're having Dr. Austin back on the show. Whether she likes it no, or I really not. don't know if any of this is legit. <laughs> I cannot put my professional stamp of approval on any of this research. I want ladies. nothing more to do with this show. <laughs> Detach <or> my name. <laughs> she values her business too much. <laughs> Um, the third part of that question was, um, are you hired by both private parties, like private citizens, and also government agencies? Yes, that's right. Government agencies, you- private citizens, corporations, uh, and, and or, you know, law firms representing any of the above. And people overseas can hire you? Like, those are your overseas cases? Overseas cases can be investigators hiring me or attorneys or uh, the same same thing, same thing. And, you know, frankly, uh, a lot of the cases that I have overseas will end up being tried in the United States because our juries, they award so much money that most people seem to want to bring their cases to be tried in the U.S. if they can. Now, that doesn't mean all of them are a lot of other ones are, you know, in Europe or uh, Canada or other countries. But yeah, you'd think that they have to stay wherever that jurisdiction is. Well, it's strange the way the law works, especially in cases of like shipping accidents or mm-hmm. aviation accidents, because it has to do with um, the passengers where you bought your ticket, for example. Um, there's the Warsaw Convention, which determines like how and how you bought your plane ticket so that uh, plenty of people come to the United States who aren't U.S. citizens and, and yeah. use our courts. This is similar to what we kind of talked about in our cruise ship disappearances episode, yep. too, where the legality is yeah. so fluid because of the, for those exact reasons. Yeah, it depends you have on your where port of registered. And mm-hmm. Yeah, port of exit or whatever. Mm-hmm. So bizarre. That's got to be really from. hard. I feel like if even one victim is a U.S. citizen, then there could be a claim Mm-hmm. Have you investigated any cruise ship crimes? Not cruise ship cruise ship crimes, but uh, certainly accidents. Oh, of which there are many. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> because cruise ships are death traps. We're we're very anti cruise on this show. I take a strong <laughs> stance against cruise ships. <laughs> You know, I have to admit, I've never been on a cruise. Good girl. Good. <laughs> Good girl. <laughs> Neither have any of us. We've just, like, read about all of the crazy shit that happens on and them. we're all alive. Yeah. I want coincidence? <laughs> I think not. <laughs> um, could Would you mind walking us through um, maybe your favorite case that you've ever worked on, um, how it came across your desk, what the context was, and then how you went about uh, helping to solve it? I don't know if I have a favorite case, but um, certainly some some interesting ones. Some are just quite simple. Um, probably 
the easiest case was, um, and then I'll go through kind of a different one, but uh, the easiest case was uh, up in Truckee, California, which is by Lake Tahoe. Um, they they use propane, a lot of the people in their houses, and they you have to have Ugh. it delivered. And um, they bring it in a truck and, you know, get the hose out and hook it up to the tank and fill up the tank. Well, uh, there was a man who worked for one of the propane companies up there, and apparently he put in a claim to his insurance company, and the investigator for that insurance company contacted me because he was claiming that he was going in the backyard of you know, one of the houses to fill the tank, and he all the snow he couldn't see, he slipped on these boards and all this other stuff, and he needed like a whole knee reconstruction and blah, 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 and they just wanted he had the investigator just had a little he was suspicious so i looked into it and not only had it not snowed that day it hadn't snowed for weeks before that so uh mm. i just wrote a report and the and i apparently they just denied the claim so that's that's kind of one of the more, more straightforward ones some of the ones that can get quite complicated are uh, in particular aviation cases because you're dealing not just on the ground you have this machine that's flying uh, in the air, going for, through all different types of air masses, um, under, you know, with different things of inf- impacting it and affecting it, and they can be quite complicated and interesting. Um, sometimes it, a lot of times actually, determining, for example, and if it's a private uh, aircraft, who was flying, and just determining who was flying becomes an important issue because for the insurance and how it's written and who gets what and who, who sues who. And, um, so that, that can be quite, quite interesting. Um, but in terms of reconstructing the weather for those, uh, the Korean airlines crash in Guam, I don't know if you remember, it was a 747 and, um, it crashed, um, on the way trying to land in a, in a rainstorm in Guam. And it was all over the news. I remember seeing it because some people, many people lived, many people perished, but I remember seeing people outside the wreckage and it was burning wreckage and quite, mm. quite amazing. But, um, that, that was, uh, that was a, meteorologically speaking, that was a very interesting case for me. Are you afraid of flying now after covering all these, <laughs> investigating all these aviation crashes? I am. Yeah. I definitely. I was before, and it's just way worse now. I I do feel like I know so much that sometimes when I look at the weather of where it is that I'm going, and I I get myself sometimes thinking, oh boy, uh, I'm not I'm not looking forward to this flight. And uh, I know you know too much. I do. I do. Oh no. And you know, especially when there's like low level wind shear and they have to do a couple yeah. go rounds and I'm thinking, Oh boy, I, I'm not enjoying this at all. No, this is how oh it starts. God. Every report I've ever written starts with wind shear. I think <laughs> on a night just like it. tonight. <laughs> I think I need to take some Dramamine just as I'm sitting at my desk talking about this right now. Oh, I'm, I'm taking my- Zen right now. <laughs> I'm going to watch Flight as soon as we're done with this. You're topic. a monster. It's um, a good movie. Um, I, good. I have one more question. Um, sure. Have, have you ever done any cases related to the great Minnesota Halloween blizzard of 91? <laughs> no, because no one's ever disputed it. Ever. 
only I, talked about it ad nauseum <laughs> over Coors Lights in the I, driveway. Yeah, I haven't because I didn't start in forensics until like 94. So. Oh, okay. Okay. Uh, you just um, missed it. I was a California raisin that year. So I was just wearing a purple pillowcase that my mom drew big dots on to make like a raisin. It was chilly. Just I just crafty. So hard. I think I just painted my face and then wore my pink snowsuit, and you could only see my eyes peeking out mm-hmm. as I went trick or treating. I was uh, blissfully living in Connecticut while you freaks were getting dumped on in the middle of October. It was End really fun. The snow was so high. I know I was short, but it was like an towering. alien landscape. Yeah, it was like Amazing. towering over us because we were four years old. So it was just like, oh my God. Anyway. <laughs> um, I have a question about these cases where you investigate something like an airplane. Do you have to work fairly closely with somebody who's uh, presumably more knowledgeable about the mechanics of those types of things, like an airplane? Well, that's interesting. Um, What usually happens, uh, we do have an aviation person here at the company, which helps keep us all on track in terms of how the systems work and everything. But I just strictly testify to the weather conditions. However, that being said, it does help to know the background of things. And A lot of the aviation cases, they have many experts. Each side will have many experts. And I find it really interesting and quite good when all of the experts get together and present what they've each found to try and piece together what actually happened, a timeline of events. And and so there'll be, you know, let's say a piloting expert, a metallurgist, um, an MD to talk about the injuries on the bodies and, and that sort of thing and how what happened when, and um, just all the different experts when we get together, that is quite, uh, it's good learning experience for everyone um, to learn about everyone else's field, but also to be able to piece together what happened. And it's quite satisfying when there is an answer. Yay, teamwork. Exactly, exactly. Well, that's all of my questions that I have for Dr. Austin. Do either of you two have any more? I don't. I I do have a comment, though. You have a very soothing voice. I know. (laughs) I, like, don't want to end this interview. That's the quietest I have ever been in my life. (laughs) Just listening to you. I was like, oh, my God. I want want to have you record, like, soothing tapes for me to get to sleep to at night so I'll reach out after this interview yeah have you thought about starting a podcast you Uh, should (laughs) thank you well maybe it's helpful when I'm on the stand trying to talk to a jury I would believe they'd all be asleep I would believe you in a heartbeat we have great graphics and animations (laughs) the magic of graphics and animation full of surprises okay well I think that wraps up our interview with Dr. Elizabeth Austin thank you so much for being on our show thank Thank you you so much for having me yeah we love you you're totally like the calmest badass I've ever met (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad I have a literal recording of your voice because I'm just going to play it on a loop 
while I fall asleep. <laughs> and yeah. I know I have a mom who I love very much, but like, <laughs> move over, Suzanne. I want Dr. Elizabeth Austin to be my new mom. <laughs> Sorry. So that said, everybody make sure to set your TiVos or whatever for Weather Channel's Storm of Suspicion, where you too can listen to Dr. Austin's soothing voice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. Thank, thank you. you again so much. Thanks so much for having me. Take care. If floodwaters swept away your in-person therapist, <laughs> you might need there we talk go. space. <laughs> That's not funny. Oh. That's not funny. Anyway, what is talk space? <laughs> talk space is the online therapy company that makes it easy, affordable, and convenient to connect you with a licensed therapist. And that means that there are no charlatans. There are no snake uh, oil snake salespeople. Snake oil salespeople. <laughs> Nailed it. There are no um, patent medicines. <laughs> uh, it's all real therapists with training on various issues. Any yeah. issue that you might encounter. Yeah, there is kind of like a specialized someone for everyone. They can talk to you about relationships, depression, anxiety. There are substance abuse disorder counselors. There's all kinds of amazing people that you could be connected with who are specially trained to help you get through whatever you're going through right now. And there's cool little groups that you can join, little chats. The group therapies in there are really cool. I'm in the quarter-life crisis group. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) It's real, people. It's really yeah. real. I think you're about to age out of that group. Amanda. Oh, thank you. That's helpful. <laughs> Picking up my phone and texting my group right now. <laughs> Listen to what this means. Just my said. business partners <laughs> said. I didn't say anything. Um, you're complicit. <laughs> you laughed. Um, so with Talkspace, you can voice memo, text, video chat, call whatever you want your therapist at any time from anywhere mm-hmm. and uh it's way more affordable than traditional therapy and we all love it so for 45 dollars off your first month go to talkspace.com forward slash gals g-a-l-s and treat your brain treat it treat it and now a word from another sponsor Folen is a clean beauty retailer that believes that no one should have to compromise their health for beauty. To be full and approved, a product has to be safe, effective, and luxurious to experience. I like that. Mm -hmm. They're uncompromising, some might say relentless, in the quest to find the best products. Here is their five-step approval process. Identify, research, test, validate, and launch. Mm-hmm. I love this. They have a restricted ingredients list because ingredients can be harmful for different reasons and your skin absorbs up to 60% of the ingredients applied. So it really matters what they put in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, Folen ensures that every ingredient in their products plays a positive role in your health with no downsides or compromises allowed. So the Clean Essentials Kit, it is 100% non-toxic. It's vegan and cruelty-free and suitable for all skin types. And you can take the skin quiz. So you can come Mm. clean risk-free. If any product you try doesn't work for you, they'll replace it with something that does. So you can take that quiz, kind of see what products are going to work best for you. You can try them out. If they don't work, you can replace them at any time. Again, no problem. It's pure and simple with free returns. 
Amazing. Yeah, your daily skincare routine just got a whole lot cleaner. The Clean Essentials Kit features trial sizes of four everyday non-toxic skin essentials. I was so excited to try this out. Mm-hmm. So that includes the uh, OSEA or OC Ocean Cleanser. That's beautiful. The other thing about these that I love is that the packaging is gorgeous. Oh, gorgeous. It's so stunning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It also comes with the Indie Lee COQ10 Toner, my favorite, the Ursa mm-hmm. Major Golden Hour, and a Fallen refillable soap. I so, love that soap. And it's like, it's a multi purpose soap. So you can carry that when you're traveling. You can use it on your face, you can use it on your hands. Mm-hmm. Like, it's really, really, really gentle and nice. I'm tucking that puppy in my little travel bag for oh, sure. Oh, heck yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, heck yeah. But like I said, that uh, toner, the Indie Lee toner, is really, really nice. I actually used it this morning. Um, I have a lot of toners in my life, and some of them I really like, and some of them are just like, "Mm, it feels a little greasy. I don't think I like it. But this is like, like I'm going to go, I'm going to. I'm going to buy more of this. It's clean <laughs> and refreshing. Like your face feels refreshed after you put it on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, it, and it people really also rave about that Ursa Major Golden Hour. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I've heard a lot of people recommend it. And so then when I saw it in this kit, I was like, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's good stuff. And you don't need very much of it. Just a little bit a long do you. way. Yep. So for only $22, that's over 50% off, try the Clean Essentials Kit today. Go to folen.com forward slash gals to try the kit and enter gals at checkout for free shipping. Again, for only $22, which is over 50% off, try the Clean Essentials Kit today by going to folen.com forward slash gals. That's F-O-L-L-A-I-N.com forward slash G-A-L-S to try the kit and enter Promo code G-A-L-S at checkout for free shipping. Treat your Treat face. Treat your skin. <laughs> <laughs> your whole face. <laughs> All right. Well, as we record this, it's um, just a few days past the one-year anniversary of Hurricane Maria making landfall in Puerto Rico. Oh, Ugh. dear. And... Y'all ready to be bummed the fuck out? I always am when you start talking. (laughs) (laughs) I've steeled myself for your case. My Talkspace (laughs) app is open. (laughs) So I've, I've focused more on like the storm and it's like broader effects on crime rather Mm. than like one specific case this time. Oh, I like that. Yeah, so a little I bit like of a these zoom episodes out. Where we have to be a little creative with how we present our segment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's kind yeah. of fun. Really gives us a chance to spread our wings. Spread our wings <laughs> and fly. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so I'm going to open with a quote from criminologist Jose Raul Cepeda. Quote, hurricanes affect everyone, including criminals. Ooh. Bum, bum, bum. <laughs> Foreboding. So foreboding. <laughs> okay. I'm putting that's the epitaph on Kenyon's so foreboding tombstone. Soup's foreboding, <laughs> but make it a pun and have no, her like an etching of a sailboat and it says so foreboding. <laughs> okay, you were right. both talking Hur- at the same time, so I don't know who to laugh at. Hooray! <laughs> me. Okay, you both know it's me. <laughs> I couldn't hear Hur- either of you. Hurricane Maria 
was a. How do you solve a problem like Maria? (laughs) Oh no, too soon. It's a category five (laughs) hurricane. Um, way too soon. That's fucked up. We're terrible. Clearly, we're still trying to solve the problem that was Maria. (laughs) That's true. That's very true. Yeah, our government did a terrible job of solving the problem of probably a new president Um, would be a good start to solve that that problem. That'd be great. (laughs) Okay. So Hurricane Maria was a rare Category 5 hurricane when it first made landfall on the Caribbean island of Dominica. Dominica, Nica, Nica. Okay. And as it continues. (laughs) That's a song from, I think, The Flying Nun, of course. Okay. As it continued on its course, it slightly weakened and was reclassified as a Category 4 by the time it struck the U.S. territory of Puerto Rico on September 20th, 2017. Mm -hmm. But it was still the strongest storm to hit the island in nearly a century. Wow. Um, It has been compared to a, quote, 50-mile-wide tornado. Yeah. Yikes. Uh, It had sustained 150 mile per hour winds and unleashed massive destruction and a humanitarian crisis for the island's 3.4 million American citizen residents. Yep. Not that it matters, but they're fucking citizens. Okay. The U.S. government aid agencies proved woefully unprepared for the disaster due in part to the fact that Hurricane Maria came just 27 days and 10 days on the heels of Hurricanes Harvey and Irma, respectively. Oh, that's right. It was like rapid succession. It was freaky. And we even kind of fell into this trap because, remember, we had done a fundraiser to um, raise money to donate for... uh, menstrual hygiene products, I believe, mm-hmm. uh, for Hurricane Harvey survivors. Mm-hmm. And then these other hurricanes hit and we, you know, we had we just done a fundraiser. Unprepared. But yeah. at least we didn't transfer millions of dollars away from FEMA into ICE. So Putting children in cages. Yeah, no, we didn't do that. Okay. Um, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, or FEMA, Their Caribbean distribution center warehouse is actually located on Puerto Rico, so you would think that they would be well-stocked and well-prepared because Mm -hmm. that's their distribution center. Um, And it's also the only FEMA emergency stockpile in the Caribbean. But before Maria hit, 83% of the supplies stocked there, including 90% of the fresh water and all of the tarps and cots, had already been deployed for post-Irma relief, mostly to the U.S. Virgin Islands. So all of their stuff was, like, wildly depleted when Maria struck. And also, I saw recently that there were, like, 20,000 cases of bottled water that was just sitting in the middle of the jungle. It was never delivered to anyone. Oh, wow. Oh, it could, yeah. could be. I mean, communication got fucked, so it could just have been, like, a freak error of, you know, logistics. Um, I don't know. We'll get to it. Okay. Analyses of FEMA's response have also uncovered serious staff shortages and a severe lack of appropriately trained personnel. Mm. Um, So many of the workers deployed to help were not Spanish-speaking. 
Oh, so um, they can't even communicate very well with folks on the island. Mm-hmm. Correct. Um, yeah. And also, many of them were not physically fit enough to handle work in a demanding post-disaster environment for extended mm-hmm. periods of time. So, I mean, one third of Americans are obese. Yeah. And well, it and can be... Like, People who volunteer for these things are often like sweet church basement ladies. Mm-hmm. Or like retirees. Are, yeah, like retirees. Lots that don't of have youth groups, jobs. though. Yeah. yeah. Either too young or, you know, too old or not physically fit enough to be able to do this for weeks on end. Yeah. You know, like and maybe you can volunteer you for need, like military level Right. Supply and assistance because it's that right. much devastation. Right. Um, what else? Others were simply exhausted after a month of round the clock storm management work in Texas and Florida already. So they were yeah. already kind of at the end of their ropes. Like they'd already been working, you know, 15, 16, 18 hour days uh, in other disasters and now they were being deployed to puerto rico and doing it again after a month and it was just too much so brutal Mm -hmm. so they didn't they didn't have enough people to like relieve them and get like fresh people in there um but this was more than just a case of federal agencies being stretched too thin one month after hurricane maria devastated puerto rico fema still hadn't authorized full reconstruction aid to the island so they were just really slow to authorize more money for help. And part of that could be attributed to racism. Mm-hmm. Um, Donald Trump defended his administration's shameful response to the humanitarian crisis, giving himself an A-plus rating. Mm-hmm. I'm shocked. Yeah, he's a fucking <laughs> psycho. And attempting to explain the logistical challenge of getting supplies to, quote, an island surrounded by water, big Which, water, from the vantage ocean point of water. water is a lot of water. <laughs> right. from, from the vantage point of wetness. Yeah. It's the essence of wetness. It's um, the wettest. It's the hugest wet. <laughs> <laughs> I fucking hate that motherfucker so much. It just. It just made no sense what he was even talking about. Like, well, it's an island. So Nothing he like... says makes sense ever. <laughs> yeah. Um, let's also uh, take a moment to remember the fucking paper towel throwing incident. I can't. I can't. So fucking no. disrespectful and shitty. Yeah. There like a is a t-shirt uh... cannon to starving people. Yes, exactly. Okay, so there's a photo on the drive. This will be on the blog. But for those who might not know what we're talking about, maybe you're not... American or you weren't following the news at this time. Basically, Donald Trump was visiting an emergency distribution center in Puerto Rico, and he chose to use it as sort of like a political rally. Like a rally opportunity. Yeah, he's so gross. And started throwing paper towel rolls, which were like relief supplies, uh, into a crowd of like stunned survivors like Amanda yeah. said, like a fucking t-shirt cannon. Yeah, it was like at a fucking basketball game. It was so, so cra- It was so crazy. Um, San Juan Mayor Carmen Yulene Cruz uh, responded by stating publicly, 
I am begging, begging anyone who can hear us to save us from dying. If anybody out there is listening to us, we are dying and you are killing us with the inefficiency. And of course, she was right. But according to Donald Trump's recent tweet, this is fake news and the death toll is not nearly what they're saying it is. Oh, we'll get to it. He's a fucking bastard and I hate him. So the early, quote, official death toll from the storm was just 64 people. And Donald Trump has clung to that number, you know, to try to make it seem like. Oh, it was way less than that. It was between 8 and 16. Yeah, but then it was raised like a few weeks later to 64. I'm just saying according to him last week. Yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. He went lower than 64? Yeah. He's crazy. He said it was between 8 and 16. That's insane. <sighs> oh, my God. Okay. Um, obviously, this number and those other insane numbers have been widely discredited. Um, but in the absence of a reliable figure from the government, various public health groups, social science researchers, and even journalists have attempted to come up with a more accurate count. Mm-hmm. Um, which can be a little confusing because there are different numbers out there floating. And that's because these are, you know, based on different methodologies for counting um, and different sampling. So and every attributing number, those deaths to like complications of the hurricane can be hard too. Right. Yeah. yeah so people we'll were left without bit. like their oxygen masks and things like that. Right. Right. So disaster researchers agree that estimating what is called excess mortality is the ideal way to calculate the death toll from a hurricane. Mm -hmm. It's more appropriate than adding up like counts from the morgue because a lot of people just disappeared. Um, And then also, like you were saying, there are people that died from other complications that weren't immediately attributed to the storm. Um, So basically what they do is count all the deaths in the time since the event and then compare that number to the average number of deaths in the same time period from previous years Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. say, okay, this is the excess mortality. These are the people that wouldn't have normally been dying. Um, So in late August, George Washington University, um, basically the government requested an independent investigation to come up with a better number and they went to George Washington University to do that count. Okay, so George Washington University didn't even, like, take this upon themselves. They were asked to do this by the government. Mm-hmm. Um, they put the number at 2,975 people. Jesus. Mm. And that was just through August, so less than one year after the event. Meanwhile, the New England Journal of Medicine estimated a range with a midpoint of 4,645 deaths. Holy shit. So no matter what, it's definitely thousands. It's more than 16. Yeah, Yeah, it's it's between 3,000 and 5,000 people. Mm -hmm. Um, Researchers point to these methodological differences to explain the discrepancies. So, for example, researchers said that there was a lack of awareness amongst physicians of Mm. how to appropriately uh, fill out death certificates after the natural disaster. So if some people said, like, uh, let's say somebody went without their oxygen, like Lucy Mm. said, and and died of, I don't know, whatever, 
they can die an asthma attack because they didn't mm-hmm. have their their oxygen because the hospital was destroyed. Not, it didn't have it. Yeah. Right. Then if the physician put down, like, died of an asthma attack. Right, but didn't inst- detail the fact that the right. supplies were low and can't attribute it to that situation. Then right. They can't link it back. Exactly. Um, another example would be, uh, like, if a diabetic couldn't access insulin due to storm damage or couldn't um, properly refrigerate their insulin stores due mm-hmm. to massive power outages. Oh, my friends um, and I talk about how I would be the first to die in the apocalypse all the time. Mm-hmm. You have friends you besides us. You are Scott. Yeah. Who? Uh, that's what true friends <laughs> i'm so sorry oh god <laughs> how what have I done? dare you <laughs> um you better pray you make it to the apocalypse oh okay. my god <laughs> i'm She's scared worried. of kenyan <laughs> okay anyway so these people died because of the hurricane just as much as anyone who was like swept away in a flash yeah, flood or struck 100%. by debris yeah and that's not to say that anyone who died of complications due to diabetes at that time was related to the storm, but some cases were directly related to the storm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, either figure puts Hurricane Maria as one of the deadliest storms to ever hit the United States. Unbelievable. Of course, based on nothing more than his own bloated ego and rampant narcissism, Trump has publicly <laughs> disputed these figures. Oh, I know who we're talking about. I know yeah. who we're talking about. <laughs> you didn't even need to say his name. Just bloated. Li- <laughs> Knew it. And listen, folks, we know that a lot of you don't listen to true crime podcasts to hear political stuff, but it's our show. And if we want to talk about it, we're gonna. Okay. Mm-hmm. So... Hurricane Maria caused an estimated $95 billion in damage, uh, not to mention the more long-term impacts on Puerto Rico's already recession-hit economy, including 30,000-plus job losses Mm -hmm. um, and mass emigration of residents to the U.S. mainland, which could represent, like, more longer-lasting brain drain. Um, or just population decline if a yeah. lot of people leave the island and choose not to come back. Um, but let's talk crime. In the aftermath of Hurricane Maria, Puerto Rico's homicide rate has risen to roughly 20 killings per 100,000 residents, compared with just 3.7 per 100,000 residents on the mainland. So 20 compared to 3.7. Wow. That is a huge spike. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, This represents a huge uptick and some say an uncontrolled spiral of the island's murder rate. Mm. The month of January 2018 witnessed a doubling in the normal homicide rate from the previous year. There have also been increases in other violent crimes, such as robberies and carjackings. Here are some examples of crimes that occurred just in January alone. Oh, God. 
In the early morning hours of January 1st, someone called 911 to report, quote, the charred, bullet-riddled body of a man with a snake-like tattoo on his left hand lying beside a road in the town of Vega Baja. Jesus. Oh, my God. Charred? Charred and bullet-riddled body. Snake tattoo? Yep. You have a snake tattoo. It could have been me. It was on his (laughs) hand. Oh, okay. Okay. I'm only Um, a little bit listening. Another man (laughs) was shot to death, thanks, before dawn nearby (laughs) while trying to stop thieves from stealing his generator. Oh, God. That same week, two men were found dead with their feet and hands bound in Bayamon, a city southwest of the capital. Three people were seriously wounded in a shootout in a strip mall parking lot, also in Bayamon. So Three I was, dead. Sorry, I yep. was thinking that like maybe the homicide rates went up because people were desperate for resources, but like not even. Some of this we're sounds gonna, a little opportunistically malicious. Yeah, but some of it, I'm sure, like the the people stealing the generator. That sounds like desperation to me. I it's think there's probably mix. both. Yeah. 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 And and I am gonna get into the, the various reasons. Okay. Um three dead bodies were discovered near a basketball court in the city of Carolina. Two men were found shot to death in a car near an upscale resort on the north coast. Two other men were discovered murdered and sprawled in the street near a public housing complex on the west coast. This one's really bad. A 20-year-old woman was found kneeling and burned to death inside a car in the upscale city of, I can't pronounce that, Guaynabo. Holy Um, shit. Jesus. The son of a former judge was killed after trying to write down the license plate number of a car that was, like, driving by and basically doing like a drive-by and also just like shooting randomly in the air and he was seen trying to write down the license number and was then found murdered and all of that was just in january and those were just the examples that i could find written about in english newspaper articles so those were not even not even all of the murders um Most of the homicides involve young men in their 20s, which indicates possible drug or gang connections. Mm. Um, But then there are also just, like, plain robberies gone wrong, like the the generator incident. Also, um, in February, police arrested Adriel Carrasquillo Carmona after he stole a 70-year-old man's gray 1988 Oldsmobile Cutlass. Like, you really need a 1988 Oldsmobile Cutlass. Right. That's just bullshit. Also thought um, you said seven-year-old man's Oldsmobile. <laughs> like, he's very mature for his not age. not a man. He has Benjamin Button disease. <laughs> oh, no. Um, so this guy attacked this elderly victim with a sledgehammer. Jesus. Before... Wow. Reaching inside the man's bloodied pockets to take his cell phone and $800 cash and this piece of shit car. Whoa. Um, another 20-year-old university student was fatally shot during a robbery of the food truck where he was working. Aww, poor baby. And in December, Puerto Rican legislator Denise, sorry, Dennis Marquez was mugged at gunpoint. So... 
a lawmaker was mugged at gunpoint. Yeah. Oh. What a scary okay. place to be at that time. I mean, mm-hmm. it just sounds yeah. like a post-apocalyptic hellscape. Yeah, and it's not isolated to one part. Right. You know, it's like yeah. scattered throughout. Yep. Well, as we've kind of hinted at, there are a multitude of reasons for the crime spike. Namely, lawlessness, a vacuum of authority, a feeling of impunity amongst criminals, Mm -hmm. and also a a climate of fear amongst law-abiding citizens. Mm -hmm. So 72-year-old retired math tutor Sebastian Mercado of Trujillo Alto, God, my Spanish is so bad, um, told reporters... Didn't you teach a Spanish class? No, I was the substitute, so I... So, yes, she briefly (laughs) taught a Spanish class. He watched a lot of movies. They watched (laughs) Selena like eight times. It was a lot of working independently. Yeah. Independent study. Heads down. Trabajo. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So this guy said, quote, the boys walk around with big guns, the drugs, too much violence. Of course, such pervasive fear can also lead to increased violence, including, like, accidents or, you know, attempts at self-defense, which Mm -hmm. then, like, escalate. And according to Monica Codillo, a postdoctoral student, quote, people are upset, and if they have any sort of weapon at hand, it's not hard to see how these conflicts can get out of hand when all those factors converge. So, like, everybody is tense. Everybody is trying to, like, protect themselves, and shit can just happen. spiral. Yeah. Meanwhile, police have been forced to focus on meeting the immediate survival needs of the population after the storm, which is, like, obvious. Um, and they've had less time for fulfilling their routine duties, including patrolling the streets, investigating cases, etc. So, in turn, criminals feel a sense of impunity. They know that the authorities are too busy to adequately prosecute them. And they're pretty much right because police have issued warrants or arrested suspects in only a handful of cases since the storm hit. Right. And, I mean, I think people forget that, like, emergency care providers that include, you know, doctors, police officers, firemen, all this. Firefighters. Firefighters, sorry. They're affected by this, too, and these people die, and mm-hmm. their resources are depleted, and, like, they you know, it's not just... They have family members who are in right. trouble, and... It's not yeah. just your quote-unquote average citizen that goes missing in these scenarios. It's also the people who are supposed to provide aid. They're affected Absolutely. by it, too. Absolutely. Um, also... There are severe police issues that are contributing to this vacuum of law enforcement. Um, So Puerto Rico was already officially bankrupt before Maria hit. Yeah. And that's because the government uh, fell. Well, we don't have to get into it. But what you need to know is that the, the budget was already overwhelmed before Maria hit. Then things just got worse, obviously, after Maria hit, and the government fell super behind in paying overtime payments owed to police officers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And 
what they ended up owing in overtime payments was like millions of dollars. Yeah. They were they were back on. So in the months following the storm, most officers worked 12-hour shifts seven days a week. Oh, my and God. And that is despite whatever situations they were facing at home. So yeah. some of them also lost their homes, lost their loved ones, like you said. Didn't matter. They were there working all day, every day. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of them didn't have a day off for over two months. Um, and the overtime that they were owed then is, like, really significant. Mm-hmm. And and it can make a difference in someone's life. Like, if your house is washed away and you're you're doing all this work and you're owed this money for the work that you've done. Right, and you don't know and when you're, you're not ever going to see paid, that money. Yeah. Yeah, it can be very frustrating. Yeah. So um, this is all happening after the police had already faced major budget cuts before the storm. And those budget cuts uh, included sharp reductions in their monthly pensions. So in the past, officers with 30 years under their belts would receive an annual pension of between 65 and 70 percent of their salary. So they could plan to live off of their pension, basically, Mm -hmm. more or less. But with these budget cuts before the storm, the pensions were reduced to just 30 to 35 percent. And I think that people who, I mean, you work 30 years. Let's say you've worked 29 years. You're due for your pension the following year. And all of a sudden you're told it's going to be half right. what you were expecting. That's all of terrifying. your financial planning goes down the drain. Yeah. Yeah. Can you imagine? And it's too late to, f- to fix it. It's yeah, too late you for you to be like. And change yeah. What you've put away. I, th- I think that should be fucking illegal i feel like whatever the pension was when you signed on to the job that has to be honored by the time you retire Mm -hmm. but what do i know um okay also police were no longer allowed to cash in unused sick days at retirement and that can be a huge uh difference in in pay at the end oh yeah um like, for example, Zach's dad, he's a teacher, but he has, like, over a year's worth, I think, of unused sick days Whoa. that he can cash in when he retires. So he'll get, like, a year's worth of salary. I think. I don't know. He's listening to this. He's going to yell at me. Okay. Um, <laughs> budget shortfalls also uh, led to widespread reports of police needing to pay for their own oil changes and other maintenance uh, for their patrol cars. Oh my some ev- God. Some even like had to replace all the tires on their patrol cars from out of their own pockets. Oh my God. Yep. And they're like teachers yeah. who have to buy school supplies. It's yeah, uh, like, it's- think of how absurd it sounds for a police officer to have to maintain their vehicle. And mm-hmm. you should be that shocked and appalled that teachers have to provide their own school supplies to their students who can't oh, afford them. Oh, I am. It's super Imagine. Imagine if you worked in an office and your boss was like, yeah, going to need you to buy all the printer ink for this yep. floor. Yeah. Yep. For, for, the like, force, for the next, like, f- three months. Yeah, for the rest of your time working here. You'd yeah, be like, much. excuse me, what? You're like, oh, yeah, and also so-and-so's office chair broke, so we're going to need you to buy it, fork up yeah, for that. Yeah, we don't have a replacement, like, so if you what? want a chair, you're going to have to get your own. Right? 
It's insane. Okay. So to protest all of these things, thousands of police officers began calling in sick en masse to protest. And this represented, quote, unprecedented massive absenteeism. So this is a few months after the storm hit and police were fed up and they were like, screw this. If I'm not going to get paid, I'm not going to show up to work. Fair enough. Um, Making this whole situation even more terrifying. Yep. Yep. So on January 1st, just that day, 3,335 officers called in sick for the first shift. And then 3,501 called in sick for the second shift. Out of how many total officers? The whole island has about 13,600 officers. Wow, that's a big chunk. That is a big chunk. Big chunk. And in normal times, about 500 officers are out on any given day. So if you divide that between shifts... Um, there are actually three shifts. We, we didn't have data for how many were absent on the third shift. But 500 divided by three is math. <laughs> it's like one. And I'm just silent. I'm just not even going to try. Yeah. Is that right? Sure. Nailed so it. So let's say, let's say that's how many are out. 175 is how many are out on a typical shift. This was 3,500. Dang. Yeah. So, on average, the protest took out about 2,000 police each day. So, January 1st was, like, the biggest, but on average, it was 2,000 were off the streets each day out of 13,000. Wow. And this deliberate absenteeism uh, also forced, like, over a dozen police stations to temporarily close because they just didn't have the officers to operate. That's crazy. So some were closed for a few hours on a given day. Some were closed for several days. Um, Police Chief Michelle Hernandez resigned after only one year on the job. Wow. And that was because of all these issues and, you know, obvious. So this is happening. And then also, like, the leadership is kind of rudderless. Okay. Besides all the police issues, there were electrical grid issues. So Hurricane Maria completely destroyed 80% of Puerto Rico's electrical grid. Destroyed it. It's gone. Good God. Um, In the aftermath of the storm, 95% of cell phone towers were no longer working, which left the entire island without communications for almost a week. And then some more remote areas were cut off for several weeks or a month. That's so scary too, because when you have family that's not nearby, mm-hmm. how do you let people know that you're okay? How do you let people know if you're not okay? A lot of people just did, didn't hear from their family members for like a month after that's the storm and so had no scary. idea how they were doing or yeah. if they I have survived. a couple of friends on Facebook who have family in Puerto Rico and like their stories are harrowing. It's like I found mm-hmm. they found my uncle three months after the storm, you know, right. Just hanging out somewhere trying to survive. Right. It's horrifying. Um, also for those on police duty, the streets are darker because of the electrical grid issues Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. are considered therefore, you know, more dangerous. And 
for months, for almost 10 months after the storm hit, power was only restored to about 60% of customers on the island. Wow. Now, now it's mostly restored everywhere, but it took months and months. Um, some remote communities went 10 months without any electricity. Very few families had generators, and even those who had them could rarely afford to run them because of super high oil prices. Oh, yeah. Didn't even think about that. It's just it's every piece of it. Yeah, and or they couldn't even get somewhere to buy the oil to run their generator. Yeah, you don't think of how like luxurious basic infrastructure is until mm -hmm. suddenly you have none of it. Mm -hmm. Oh, like overnight yeah. you have none of it. Mm -hmm. And on top of um, that, people are trying to exploit you if you're desperate for something, you know, there's probably that shit rampant. I'm sure some prices were, were jacked up in an exploitative way. I'm sure some prices were jacked up because it was hard to get supplies to the island, you know, and supplies were rare, and that's capitalism, folks, mm -hmm. you know? Um, a lot of residents report that they've changed their normal routines since the storm and that their social life has been severely reduced because they try to be home early every day before the sun sets. It's almost like a self-imposed curfew because of the crime. So they're like, oh, I just got to get home before dark. I'm, I'm not going to stay late at work. I'm not going to take this shift at work. So that's loss of income. Or I'm not going to, like, go meet up with my friends and relax and de-stress over a beer because I need to get home before dark. Yep. There also is also a major issue of gangs fighting for territory. So... Mm. Puerto Rico was already a transit point for drugs being shipped from South America to the U.S. mainland because um, Puerto Rico is a U.S. territory. So they those shipments, once they're in Puerto Rico, then they don't have to go through customs right. to get to the U.S. Um, and since Hurricane Maria, a turf war has broken out amongst drug gangs looking to grab territory after this major disruption. So if they're like, oh, maybe like the head of drug gang X disappeared or a lot of his, you know, henchmen disappeared, mm -hmm. this is an opportunity for us to get this neighborhood under our control. Mm -hmm. And so they, they fight it out. So that has led to a lot of violence. Um, drug traffickers have been entering rival territories to increase sales and also to try to recover losses after the storm disrupted their own businesses. So like the quote at the beginning, hurricanes affect everyone, including criminals. So people probably aren't prioritizing buying drugs in the first month or two after the storm hits. And... That's a huge loss of income for these drug gangs, and they, they need to make it up somehow. So they're going to be a lot more aggressive in trying to, you know, recover that money that they lost. Yeah. Um, Law-abiding citizens get caught up in the crosshairs. Uh, of these drug gangs, and so there's a lot of there have been a lot of drive-by shootings, which we mentioned at the top. Um, mm. 
And also some people said that there's just some opportunism. So like criminals trying to settle scores that existed even before the storm. But now because it's so lawless, they can actually do it with more impunity. Um, and then somebody else said, I think it was the vice president of a police officer's advocacy group, said that the killings are only going to increase because criminal gangs are going to start entering into these cycles of revenge. Oh, God, yeah. I didn't even think about that. So, like, if you killed my guy, I'm going to kill two of your guys. Okay, he killed two of my guys, I'm going to kill five of your guys. You and know, where whatever. does it fucking it's, end? Right, exactly. It's like blood feuds at a certain point. Um, and then there's just the obvious problem of increased economic hardship and inequality, which is going to lead to crime anywhere. Um, so the island was already struggling to repay its debts, and it had all these, like, harsh austerity measures, which we talked about with the police, all these budget cuts. So people were already struggling, and now they have even less, and they need so much more. Lucy, are you still there? Yeah. Okay. Sorry. I'm listening quiet. quietly to your case and coloring. Okay. She's depressed. Co- I'm coloring. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the island already had a 10% unemployment rate before the hurricane, and 45% of the inhabitants already lived in poverty before Hurricane Maria. Wow. So the need was already really great. And then hurricane led to job losses. People have had to foreclose on their homes, businesses. You know, the island was pretty dependent on tourism. That's been completely fucked. And my segment probably isn't helping. Um, but it's bad. So all these issues, lack of infrastructure, lack of employment, lack of law enforcement, lack of prospects for young people, all of this is leading to super increased crime. Mm-hmm. And the risk of death is 45% higher for people living in poorer areas of the island. Like, of course. Yeah. So, are there any solutions? They've tried, they've created a new department of public safety. So, they're trying to kind of address these issues a little more holistically. Jury is still out on whether or not that's going to work. Um, Puerto Rico has also asked the U.S. DOJ for help in fighting the the crime rate, but good fucking luck because it's not like Jeff Sessions cares about Puerto Rico. Um, Also, according to Justice Secretary Wanda Vasquez, the island plans to implement a broken windows policing campaign. Uh Do you guys know what that is? Uh, I don't think i know what that means okay but i don't like broken, how it sounds it's not good. well it's it's really controversial because what it is is the the philosophy is that if you crack down on all types of crime including like really really petty crime like innocuous stuff like mm-hmm. illegal like overly tinted car windows mm. okay like that kind of shit you'll end up catching People that are guilty of more serious shit. Mm-hmm. It has turned or, into a really racist policy, though. Yes. Mm-hmm. In most places, it the implementation is incredibly racist and racially skewed because they're not arresting white people in suits for 
you know, petty infractions. They're only arresting people in poor neighborhoods, people of color or whatever. Um, so that's why Broken Windows has gotten a bad name and rightfully so. But the, the theory is if you cast like a super wide net, you're going to catch big fish in it anyway. Um, and of course, it is difficult to even think about solutions because m for many people, like Hurricane Maria is still unfolding mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. Yeah. Like the, dam the damage is still like actively happening. It's not in the past tense, all of it. And also um, officials say that Puerto Rico is not prepared for the next major storm, which yeah. could come oh. at any moment. Yeah. And, like, nothing has been done to m be more prepared for the next time no, around. No, and you could argue that, like, the more time that passes without assistance and resources, the less prepared they're becoming not for right. if, but when the next storm comes, because it will come. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. So that's my case. Maybe the most depressing of all. My God. I don't know. You have given a lot of really depressing cases. This was, this seemed cheerful compared to some. Oh my God. This I was give, a party. I give good depression. I give really good depression. Yeah. You are astonishingly good in that department. <laughs> We should do the talk space ad after your segment. But I like reminding myself should. to prepare to open the app during her case. Yeah. Yeah. I don't yeah. want to forget to have my therapist on hand while Kenyon speaks to me. Your therapist is horrified <laughs> by Kenyon. <laughs> the, Amanda's therapist has been trying to get her to like cut me out of her life. For I mean, my trigger so is my best no. friend. No. <laughs> she knows I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> all right. Anyway. And now, a word from our sponsor. Woo. <laughs> Lola is a female-founded company offering a line of organic cotton tampons, pads, liners, and all-natural cleansing wipes. And now they offer sex products, too. Yes! Lola makes <laughs> Lola makes your month a little bit easier. Their subscription is fully customizable, so you can choose your mix of products, mix of absorbency, number of boxes, and frequency of delivery. They've like really thought of everything because mm -hmm. no two periods are alike, people. Um, Lola's subscription is also super flexible, so you can change, skip, or cancel your subscription at any time, which I really like because I like to stock up uh, every time I'm, I'm going to be in the States, and then mm -hmm. I bring home literally one entire suitcase of uh, Lola products mm -hmm. back to South Africa with me because I'm an applicator girl. I'm just yeah, going to say it. Yeah, they're that good. They are that good. I am. Good. They're amazing, and it's worth it for me to pay for an extra bag fee of Lola tampons than it is to buy tampons that I don't like as much in this country. Preach. So, I'm obsessed with Lola. Mm-hmm. You can pick your products, choose from organic cotton tampons available with BPA-free plastic applicator or, which I appreciate, in an environmentally non-applicator format. Um, you, they also have pads or liners and all natural cleansing wipes, and you could also get a box of each, Mix which is what I did. Mm -hmm. um, yep. This was so funny. Like two months ago, I was just 
pining for Lola tampons because mm -hmm. we got some free ones to try out so that we could give our personal experience. And I had run out of them like instantly because they're so good. Mm -hmm. And I was I was pining for them. And Corey asked me, like, what was wrong? Because I was a little bit upset. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I'm just thinking about these tampons. He's like, well, just order some. And I'm like, mm -hmm. oh, yeah. So I used our promo code. And I ordered a bunch of tampons yeah. and these wipes. And I was it was like Christmas when they came. And Corey's like, whatever makes mm -hmm. you happy, honey. Mm -hmm. like, it is these tampons, I swear. It's the little things in life. It yep. is. Um, you can also do some good with your purchase. Also love this. For every purchase, uh, they donate feminine care products to homeless shelters across the United States. So mm, good. Amazing. Yes. And mm -hmm. I, on the next on birth control implant, really don't get much of a period anymore if I get one at all. So it's nice to just have like my emergency box of light tampons by Lola that just lives under my sink. But I am rocking a lot of products out of their sex line, let me tell you. <laughs> I know I've praised that lube until the cows come home, but today I want to talk about condoms because until now, a lot of our options have been products aggressively marketed towards men and their desires. Mm -hmm. But, like, what about my needs? Yes. Mm -hmm. You know? Mm -hmm. And at Lola, we come first. It's pretty amazing. Mm -hmm. So you should be empowered to make decisions about your sex life. And they have these ultra thin lubricated condoms that are made out of natural rubber latex and individually tested for contraception and STI protection. So you can definitely be ensured that these are top of the line protective gear. Mm -hmm. um, again, that ultra thin design and they use a premium medical grade silicone oil lubricant that ensures safety without sacrificing sensation. They mm. don't smell. They're not sticky. They're in like very discreet packaging. They're not like exploding with like bizarre photos of like an exploding car on them. It's, yeah. they're so <laughs> nice. And ladies and folks who identify as ladies, just have your own condom stash. Don't yes. wait for somebody else to provide this for you. And if you're waiting for somebody else to provide this for you, they're probably not going to provide you with the product that is going to make your experience the best possible experience for you. And that's what yeah. freaking matters. So just I'm sorry, have if yourself. you go over to your male partner's house and use their shampoo, mm -hmm. like you don't do that. No, no one does that. Because their shampoo so isn't right for your hair. So don't use right. their condom that isn't right for your downstairs. It's probably a right. two in one what like thing from the dollar store with like exactly. that's also a body wash and like yeah it's just it makes no sense <laughs> you and deserve these better are, these are the cadillac of condoms like they are seriously so nice and i am not kidding when i say they're built for comfort and quite frankly they endure through quite a lot of activity <laughs> all right well that's detailed now that we know everything about Amanda's sex life, uh -huh. <laughs> for 40% off all subscriptions, visit mylola.com and enter the promo code GALS40 when you subscribe. Mm -hmm. So again, 40% off all subscriptions. Visit mylola.com, M-Y-L-O-L-A.com and enter the code GALS40, G-A-L-S-4-0 when you subscribe. Treat yo parts. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and now a word from our other sponsor 
So I always thought that Me Undies was that really cool underwear brand with the fun, crazy prints, but it wasn't until I actually tried them on that I realized, holy crap, they're seriously the most comfortable things I've ever worn. Mm -hmm. And now that fall is here, uh, they have like jack-o'-lantern prints. It's, it's amazing. Like Halloween up the wazoo, maybe literally, depending <laughs> on what style you get. <laughs> So Me Undies uses a micromodal fabric, which is a full three times softer than regular cotton. I could not believe how soft oh. these things were. It is the exact fabric that you're going to want in that area mm -hmm. up your wazoo. That region. <laughs> the wazoo area. They also release multiple fun prints, like we said, each month and it, in matching socks and bralettes. Ah, so, so cute. Like mm -hmm, I said, mm -hmm. the jack-o'-lantern prints. They just have really fun, like, pop culture prints. I am not a Star Wars fan, but they do have Star Wars prints. Things like that. She is a Star Wars <laughs> fan, and every single closeted. pair of undies she ordered is covered in R2-D2. There really weren't enough cat prints for my liking. Mm -hmm. Well, they Some change. back there, but... It changes every month. <laughs> um, you can even get a matching pair with your partner, which is super cool. I love that. So cute. And the best part, when you join the membership, you get all this stuff. Undies, lounge pants, tees, basically my entire wardrobe. Um, everything mm -hmm. MeUndies makes for less than anyone else because they have special member pricing, which is just one of the many perks when you join the membership. MeUndies has a great offer for our listeners. For any first-time purchasers, when you purchase any MeUndies, you get 15% off and free shipping. So this is a no-brainer. Get 15% off a pair of the most comfortable undies you will ever put on. I ordered... They're seriously they dreamy. Are. I ordered um, the Cheeky Brief style in a bold color selection and... They're amazing. Mm. Okay, so to get your 15% off offer on your first pair, free shipping, and a 100% satisfaction guarantee, go to meundies.com forward slash gals. And again, that's 15% off your first pair with free shipping and a 100% satisfaction guarantee by going to meundies, M-E-U-N-D-I-E-S dot com forward slash gals. Treat your butt. Yo, wazoo. Treat yo, wazoo. So this is kind of a case, but not really. <laughs> okay. Cool. Like Kenyans. Like, like yeah. mine. I got creative. Um, excuse me. But I do want you all to know that as someone with a fear of flying and terrible travel anxiety, this sort of case, sort of not a case, very nearly killed me to research. So you're welcome. <laughs> I once okay. again give so much of myself to you fucking succubi. The <laughs> listeners, not my friends here. Um, yeah. Mix. I'm coming for all of you. Succubi. This put me through hell. Because we're going to talk about the 1985 crash of Flight 191. Oh, no. And how it was an especially important case in the development of modern forensic meteorology. Uh-oh. Nice. This isn't the crash in the Andes, is it? No. Okay. Because uh, I love that case. Because they eat each other. No, no, no. It's not that gruesome. Okay. Um, the flight, which originated in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, encountered a line of connective, or sorry, convective. There's a lot of scientific terminology in here that I straight up 
do not understand, and I did not even bother to try and research it and figure it out. So don't ask me any questions. <laughs> don't email about what us any of the science stuff means. Do not yeah. email just, us. Just don't What's bother. What's the difference between a cumulus cloud <laughs> and a <laughs> cumulonimbus? Who? <laughs> what now? Um, which which rapper? <laughs> which rapper is cumulonimbus? <laughs> he was in uh, Wu Tang, right? Wu Tang. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, sorry, encountered a line of convective storm cells just to the north of its landing site in Dallas, Fort Worth. On the final approach to landing, the aircraft flew into a microburst. That which sounds did, fun. Which is a sudden intense downdraft that can emerge from a thunderstorm. So that one I do know. The plane subsequently crashed to the ground just short of the runway, killing 134 of the 163 people on board. So Jesus. It's very devastating. Wow. Oh, no. At 6.03 p.m., the approach controller once again asked Flight 191 to reduce its speed. They had already been told to reduce because of the impending weather. Um, this time to 150 knots, which is about 170 miles per hour, and then han- handed the flight over to the tower controller to bring them in for a landing. 12 seconds later, so this just like speaks to how fast conditions yeah, can change shit goes and how down. pilots really need to be prepared for this kind of activity. Uh, 12 seconds later, the captain radioed the tower and said, Delta 190, 191 heavy out here in the rain feels good. So things are going okay. The tower controller advised Flight 191 that the wind was blowing at 5 knots, which is about 5.8 miles per hour, with gusts of up to 15 knots, which is 17 miles per hour which the Mm -hmm. captain of the plane acknowledged. The flight crew lowered the landing gear and extended their flaps for landing. At 6.04 p.m., so this is one minute later, um, one of the price, one of the uh, pilots, commented, lightning coming out of that one right ahead of us. The captain called out that Uh. they were were at 1,000 feet at 6.05 p.m., so again, this is all happening pretty quickly, 14 seconds later, he cautioned Price to watch his airspeed from the ground. Um, at the same time, the cockpit voice recorder, the CVR, captured the beginning of a sound identified as rain hitting the cockpit. The captain warned Price, you're going to lose it all of a sudden. There it is. At 6.05.26, so this is like 20 seconds later, the captain told Price, push it up, push it way up. Several seconds later, the CVR recorded the sound of the engine spooling up, um, mm-hmm. then said, that's it. Like, quote, that's it. At 6.05 mm-hmm. p.m., Connors exclaimed, hang, hang on to the son of a bitch. From this point, the aircraft began a descent from which it never recovered. The <gasps> angle of attack was over 30, uh, 30 degrees and began to vary wildly over the next few seconds. The pitch angle began to sink, and the aircraft started descending below the glidoscope. Glidoscope. Uh. And again, I do not know what any of that means, and I did not want to look into it because the more I read about it, the more I wanted to claw off my skin. Oh, my God. Well, you know who knows? Dr. Elizabeth Austin. It's now been like 30 more seconds. It's almost 6.06. The aircraft is descending at more than 50 feet per second. (gasps) Um, And the ground proximity warning system is firing off like a series of whoop whoop pull up audible warnings. It's like a voice that will speak to you yeah. in case and like, the like captain this. has passed out whoop. or yeah. Whoop. The pull captain up. responded by declaring TOGA, which is aviation shorthand for the order to apply maximum thrust and abort a landing by going around. So they're trying to like pull out of it. Uh-huh. Um, the first officer responded by pulling up and raising the nose of the aircraft, which slowed, but did not stop the plane's descent. 
Um, seconds later, it's still descending at a rapid rate of approximately 10 feet per second, so it's slowed down, but it's still bad. Yeah. The aircraft's landing gear made contact with a plow field 6,336 feet north of the runway and 360 feet east of the runway center line. So they were really close to the runway. Um, mm. Remaining structurally intact, Flight 191 remained on the ground while rolling at high speed across the farmland. The, oh, it was like a rolling shit. car. Ugh. Oh, like shit. Like the wings had snapped, but the main body of the the plane was still intact and the and the plane was rolling. Jeez. The main oh landing God. gear left shallow depressions in the field that extended for 240 feet before disappearing and reappearing a couple of the times that the aircraft had like bounced and hit the ground while it was approaching Texas State Highway 114. Oh my God! What if it hit the highway? Fuck. Uh, well, that's what you're it, su- they're <gasps> supposed to do if they can't it, make the runway. Well, I know, but it, this this landed in a plow field and rolled. It's not like they were landing on a highway; like it's oh, approaching yeah, no. a highway and I rolling. I was responding to Kenyon. They're supposed well, to aim for a highway if they can't make the runway. I mean, Shit. yeah, if it's it's safer than for the plane than dropping in a field, but pretty much. These like rolling into the highway, not great. Yeah, rolling into the highway, not so much. Um, the aircraft struck a highway street light and its nose gear touched down on the westbound lane of Highway 114. The oh aircraft's left engine hit a Toyota Celica driven by 28 year old William Mayberry, killing him instantly. As oh. the aircraft continued south, it hit two more street lights on the eastbound side of the highway and began fragmenting, so it's breaking apart. Mm-hmm. Um, the left horizontal stabilizer, some engine pieces, portion of the wing control surfaces, and parts of the nose gear came off of the aircraft as it continued along the ground. Some witnesses later testified that fire was emerging from the left wing. Um, surviving passengers, of which there were like 14 people that actually survived this crash. I can't even Reported imagine. that the fire began entering the cabin through the left wall while the plane was still moving. The aircraft's roll across open land ended when it crashed into a pair of water tanks on the edge of the airport property. So it was so close that it rolled all the way to into the airport. Into the airport. Oh, oh my, my God. God. The aircraft grazed one water tank about 1,700 feet south of Highway 114 and then struck the second water tank. As the left wing and nose struck the water tank, the fuselage rotated counterclockwise and was engulfed in a fireball. Like it exploded. Jesus. Mm. The fuselage from the nose uh, rearward to row 34 was destroyed. So the whole front half of the plane is, like, just dust. So so um, my tactic of trying to always sit in row 17 yeah. would well, not have paid fortunately, off. Fortunately, I can't afford really good seats at the front of a plane. So, like, right. just because I'm poor, I'm safer. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. The tail section emerged from the fireball, skidding backwards and came to rest on its left side before wind gusts rotated it upright. So it was so windy that Mm -hmm. after this thing settled, the wind could adjust the plane. The wind tilted it up on its end. The wind tilted a section of a stationary plane upright. That's so scary. Oh, my God. All airport fire and emergency units were alerted within one minute of the crash. 45 seconds after first being alerted, three fire trucks from the airport's fire station, number three, arrived at the crash and began fighting the fire. Like, they were so fast. Yeah, they were on it. Units from fire stations one and three arrived within five minutes, and despite high wind gusts and heavy rain, the fire was mostly under control within 10 minutes after the alert was sounded. So they really did the best they could to, Mm -hmm. you know, put out. To, to 
assist with the situation. Right. Uh, paramedics arrived within five minutes of the crash, immediately establishing triage stations, which if you've ever watched Grey's Anatomy, you've pretty much watched this exact episode. It is really hectic and really scary. Um, in later testimony, on-site EMTs estimated that without the on-scene triage procedures, at least half of the surviving passengers would have died. So these people wow. saved a lot you of know, lives. as many lives as they possibly could have. Mm-hmm. Um, most of the survivors of Flight 191 were located in the aircraft's rear smoking section. Again, this was 1985, so there were still oh. some planes that had that. Okay. So smoking saves people. That's where you would have oh. been. I mean, yeah. just soaking it all in secondhand. <laughs> Gross. Um, I know, but whatever. Um, so, yeah, most of the passengers were back there, and that is the section that broke free from the main fuselage before the aircraft hit the water tanks and, and that part blew up. So, like, even if the impact hadn't killed the people in the front section of the plane, they were then burned to death. Right. Great. Yep. Um... Authorities transported most of the survivors to Parkland Memorial Hospital for treatment. The cockpit and passenger section forward of seat row 34 had been completely fragmented by impact with the water tanks and the post-crash fires. All but eight of the occupants in the section were killed. So there were a couple of survivors It's a miracle anyone survived in I know, that section. I know, isn't that amazing? Wow. Um, the remainder of the surviving passengers and crew were in the rear cabin, like I said, um, which separated relatively intact and landed on its side in an open field. Overall, the disintegration of the tri- TriStar, which is like the type of plane it is, was so extensive that, or wait, no, not the, that's not the type of plane it is. The TriStar is like, an, an, it's sort of like a black box, I think. Okay. Um, it has it has data and information, not necessarily recordings, but it has information about like what was going on with the flight pattern or whatever. But the okay. damage to it was so extensive that the investigation into why, like who was at fault and why this plane crashed was really hard. Um, mm-hmm. Survivors reported that the fire broke out in the cabin before hitting the tanks and began spreading through the aircraft's interior, which is consistent with the right wing's collision with the light pole and the fuel tank ignition. But some people in the tail section were, una- were unable to free themselves due to injuries and rescue crews had to extricate them. Most survivors were also soaked with jet fuel, which is terrifying. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Uh, further adding to the difficulty of exiting the wreckage because it also like is debilitating. They could have- light up. Yeah. Like if there's even a small part that's like yeah. flaming and you're it's trying bad. to exit. Uh, oh! Oh, my God. Yeah, this is super fucked up. Anyway, so there were a couple of, I think it was two, yeah, two passengers who did initially survive the the crash, um, died about a month later. Um, Mm. Heart attacks, all kinds of shit. Like, it's crazy. So this crash ultimately killed 137 people, including 128 of the 152 passengers and eight of the 11-person crew. So only Mm. three of the crew survived. And... Mm. I have to say, like, it's important that we listen to and respect our flight crew because eight yes. of 11 people on that plane who are trained died, most likely saving yeah. the handful of people or trying to save the passengers on board because that's what they're trained to do. 
or trying to calm them, and yeah. all of this went down so fast, they probably yep. did not have that much time to attend to their own not, safety. They're likely not seated. They're mm-hmm. likely still right. assisting other passengers, yeah. trying to make sure that everybody's buckled in. Like, they're putting themselves at extremely high risk to ensure right. as much safety for us as passengers as possible. So when they're doing that really fucking boring thing about putting on your own mask before you put on somebody else's, maybe just fucking right. watch for, like, five minutes and shut your yep. mouth and pay some respect to these people who literally have to face the potential for this kind of bullshit mm-hmm. every day. Just and you saying. know what? I, I've been on flights where people have never flown before. This is their first time flying and mm. maybe their, you know, English wasn't so great or whatever the, the you know, safety demonstration language was mm-hmm. at the time wasn't so great. And, you know, they didn't know automatically just inherently how to right. use this this safety seatbelt and needed it explained and that's perfectly valid so mm. it's not totally obvious boring we've all seen this before like that's very privileged a lot of people haven't they need this information mm-hmm. let's give it to them yeah um so delta airlines flight 191 has the second highest death toll of any aviation accident involving a lockheed l1011 l1011 so like of this type of plane right this is the lar- the second highest death toll anywhere in the world just coming in after saudi flight 163 which killed 287 passengers and 14 crew on a lockheed l1011 uh. Wow. Yep. Wow. So these accidents are very rare, which I have to remind myself that, again, mm-hmm. it is safer to be in a plane than it is to be in a car. Mm-hmm. I just need to say that because my underboob sweat is so <laughs> prevalent right now <laughs> after talking about that fucking crash that yep. in order for me to keep going, I just have to remind myself. Yep. So. In the ensuing prolonged bench trial, the airline's attorneys argued that the National Weather Service and the Federal Aviation Administration had failed to warn the flight crew of the microburst-producing storm, which they claimed was obscured from the pilot's view by other storm cells in the area. So the airline is trying to blame the... The FAA. The FAA and the National Weather Service for not giving them accurate enough information to avoid a microburst. Okay, but then the government's arguing that the crew had the better vantage point of the thunderstorm from being in the sky and had as much, if not more, information than the National Weather Service and the FAA and therefore should not have attempted the landing at all. So in a first, the consulting firm Z-Axis, under the guidance of 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 a forensic meteorologist, was hired to create computer graphics that clearly illustrated the visibility of the thunderstorm to pilots as they approached the airport. Again, this is 1985, so this is like fucking groundbreaking. Yeah, this is like minority report. Yeah, Yeah, level shit. Prior to that, expert witnesses typically relied on transparencies, flip charts, and other low-tech means. If you remember what transparencies are, that's like literally the light your Box. overhead projector. Your overhead projector, yep. Yeah, um, senior year English class. I couldn't even remember what it was called. My the God. light box. The light box. <laughs> but like, what is, I, what is I that remember called? a time in high school when those were still used. Oh, yeah. There yeah. are a lot of people who Definitely. listen to our show who won't fucking know what we're talking about. And now I'm realizing that I'm turning 31 and everything yep. is crashing around me like this plane. Yep. Oh, no. Um, mm-hmm. Little microburst of... <laughs> so in, they were using they were using very like low tech means to pre- to present the facts of these types of cases, 
and which we know from talking to Dr. Austin, there are forensic meteorologists involved in a lot of cases that involve aviation issues. Mm-hmm. So they use weather radar data, knowledge of cloud base and cloud top altitudes, and cockpit voice recordings to reconstruct the weather conditions in the lead up to the accident. And if you head to the blog, I have a photo you can follow along with if you like. Um, the photo consists of still frames from three of the firm's video reconstructions. And one video was constructed using ground-based radar scans, so the one in the top left. Um, and these radar scans were recorded every six minutes by the National Weather Service, which is standard. They showed the real-time evolution of the cloud cover and the aircraft flight path during the landing approach in that exact area. Okay? Okay. Okay. The other picture is a still from a second video that shows the airborne radar scan, so the top right picture, that the pilots would have seen on their cockpit display. So that's what the pilots can see. Mm-hmm. Um, and then a third photo in the bottom left is simulating the forward-looking view from a position just behind the aircraft. Each of these videos was accompanied by a soundtrack of the crew's comments as captured by the cockpit voice recorder. So can you even imagine being in that courtroom and having to hear that? Oh, oh. my God. It's like the worst video game in the world. Oh, it's just awful. Um, so the still frames from these three computer-generated movies recreate the weather conditions on the 2nd of August in 1985 during their ill-fated approach to Dallas-Fort Worth. The second one has the frame from the ground-based radar showing the storm clouds at the exact time at 6.04 p.m. when like the plane was going into this storm. And there's a white curve in that photo, the mm-hmm. top right that shows the flight track, and each mark is labeled with a two-digit timestamp and the plane's altitude in feet, so you can see its descent. The exact descent. Oh, wow. Um, (laughs) So the shot from the second still shows the aircraft-mounted radar um, as they would have appeared in the cockpit display starting at 6 p.m. and, like, going... There's obviously other stills that aren't included, but it goes up until the actual, like, descent of the plane. Here, the storm clouds are represented in light green and the aircraft... Uh, heading is uh, the aircraft heading is up so it's like this is before they lost control it's four minutes before everything spiraled out of control so this is their radar vision of like what's what they're approaching while they're still like upright in the air Mm -hmm. does that make sense yeah okay 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 um and then the third frame in the bottom left is from a vantage point just behind the plane and it shows that at 6.04 p.m. during the final runway approach, the pilots would have had an unobstructed view of lightning and a dark rain shaft straight ahead of them. So in real life, the plane flew into the rain shaft, was knocked off course by a sudden downdraft, and crashed, killing all those people. So they should, um, and hi, this is showing that the pilots should have known. Yeah. Okay. It's That's what that image is showing so the but also three, like everything went down in less than five minutes yeah exactly i mean it's like it's really hard i would never want to be a judge or honestly involved in a case like this because a it's so tragic and b it's so hard to assign blame when there's so much factored in you know mm-hmm. right but like, i wouldn't even know where to begin is they have to make these decisions because there's insurance there's all kinds of aspects of of legality surrounding a plane crash that somebody has to do the shitty work of figuring out like quote unquote who's to blame so that it's fucked up handing down Um, the blame for the deaths of hundreds of people Mm -hmm. 
So right. this combination of video stills and the cockpit voice recordings clearly showed that the pilots had an unobstructed view of the thunderstorm and were aware of the storm during the approach to the airport. Like, remember that guy, one of the pilots said, like, there's rain up here. It feels good. Yeah. Like, he yeah. was acknowledging that he saw this rain. storm. And unfortunately, that kind of counted against them. Um, in one cockpit exchange, for example, the first officer is heard saying, there's lightning coming out of that one. After the captain replies, where? The first officer reply answers, right ahead. Mm -hmm. So they can see uh, it. Subsequent okay. comments made it clear that once they were in the thunderstorm's rain shaft, the pilots knew they were flying through a microburst. The videos set a new standard for visual demonstrations and forensic meteorology litigation and vastly changed the way meteorologists prepare for trial. But, like, and I know that none of the three of us can answer this. Like, if it is a microburst, mm -hmm. what would have been the likelihood of a positive outcome if the pilot had seen the lightning and that second decided to, like, change course? I think in theory, it's not necessarily that they couldn't see there was a microburst. It's that their training should have... Uh, made them assume that that was a possibility if they continued on that flight path. Okay. And instead, they sh if they had clear visibility of the storm they were approaching and, like, it looked as bad as they were told it was, that okay. the decision should have been to deviate from the flight plan and go around or, or do something else to protect the crew and the passengers. That yeah. would be my theory. So it wasn't so much in that exact moment, but... Uh a few moments prior. Yeah. They're saying okay. that leading up to the storm, they could see and knew full well that this storm was there. And so they have to take responsibility, even though they're dead. Like they're ultimately responsible for what happened. Okay. Which is, it feels gross to say. And especially knowing that a lot of this has to do with fucking insurance payouts and like what's covered and what's not. And that just seems like a dirty game when so many people died. Right. But I mean, this is what, this is what they have to figure out. For, for the business side of things, which is fucked up. Right, right. And that's my oh case. Oh, my God. Well, I'm very excited to be flying in two weeks. Can't wait um, to see you. Yay. <laughs> also, during Yay, your so case, nice. a huge thunderstorm rolled in. So I'm just oh, watching yeah. this gnarly storm happen while listening to this. It's kind yeah, of... The weather around here has been nasty. Yeah. Oh, Ooh, Joburg has really crazy lightning storms. Google it. They're Ugh. insane. Don't okay. talk about it. Well, special thanks this week. Obviously, huge shout out to the Weather Channel, um, to uh, Storm of Suspicion, yes, which everybody should it. go watch. It's really good. We've seen the first episode. Um, and to my new favorite human on planet Earth, Dr. Elizabeth Austin. Yes. She's my mom now. She is my mom she, now. <laughs> she's my mom. Yeah, she's my mm -hmm. cool aunt. Mm -hmm. Lucy, you take this one since the next one they want me to do. Oh, Lord. <laughs> okay. Mm -hmm. Big thank you to Jenny Robinson for your $5 a month donation. Uh, mm. Your Robinson. You, Jenny Robinson. Robinson. There we go. <laughs> you got this. And Tiffany Gaddy, oh. you've been so bad. <laughs> oh, no. Be my Gaddy. Oh, Thank okay. you for your $5 a month donation. Thank Ugh. you, Gaddy. 
All right, thank you to Madison Waltrip. That was a trip. That was. I'm sorry you had to deal with it. Uh, thank you also to Ella, uh, Eyeless. I think it's, Ooh. yeah. Our eyelids are drooping. Fluttering. Oh. <laughs> Coral Benjamin, you are cordially invited to <laughs> continue your Patreon donation to $5 a month. Love you. <laughs> Shout out to Megan Bartolo Cahill. Isn't Bartolo a kind of wine? Mm. Mm. Kind of sounds like a wine, but I don't think it is a wine. Sounds, but you know what? Sounds what do I like know? a wine. Bartolo. I think you're thinking of Barolo, <laughs> but whatever. Oh, yes, I am, but it's mm-hmm. close enough. Megan Bartolo Cahill. Mm-hmm. And now I'm thinking of Barilla. Mm, Sarsaparilla. Mm. The pasta. Barilla pasta? Yeah. Mm. <laughs> Thank you Bye-bye. to Amanda. Sorry. Gerzelewski. Oh, it's her name. Okay. Girl. Ger- <laughs> yelling at me. No. Amanda's oh. like, you're welcome. <laughs> Amanda. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Amanda Gerzelewski. <laughs> Nailed it. <laughs> and Bridget P. Thompson, thank you for increasing your donation from $1 to $5 a month. I will pee on you if you oh. request it. And there is Only mutual if consent. you request it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Thank you to Alicia Deshond. Um, you Deshond have. <laughs> <laughs> All right, kicking off the $10 a month tier, Caitlin Love Elizabeth, it. you will be Woo. getting a fucking patriarchy wine glass in the mail. You Elizabethan priestess. <laughs> Don't Kate it. Don't Kate it. Not even a little bit. <laughs> Kim Edmiston will also be getting a fucking patriarchy wine glass. Mm, we're getting I misty. I cannot contain my k- Kim Seitman. <laughs> <laughs> As will Nikki Wardle. You Wardle off bad spirits. Mm. Oh, nice. I like that. Mm-hmm. Hannah Parrott. Gonna feed you a cracker. And also Hannah wants a cracker. <laughs> Hannah wants a cracker. And also a fucking patriarchy wine glass. Mm. <laughs> Jamita Harris. Uh, it's heresy to say a bad word against you because you're so <laughs> generous and sweet for your $10 a month donation. Amazing. Jamita, need your number. Huh? I don't know. It's a bad one. Moving on. <laughs> Stephanie Berry. <laughs> oh, thank you very much. Oh, thank you very, very much. Very grateful. <laughs> <laughs> also, we are grateful for Catherine Moore's Ooh. pledge increase from two dollars to ten dollars a month. She's giving us more. We want more, more of you. Oh, you know who else is giving us more? Is sweet, sweet Connie Moreno. Mm. More. We'll see you in Boston, Connie. Yes. Thank you for raising your donation. We will see her and in Boston. And Kayla Hamblin also increased from 5 to $10 a month. And we are Hamblin to see you. Hamblin <laughs> on over. I'm going to Hamble <laughs> over on down to Hamblin Town. <laughs> <laughs> Big thanks to Ollie Cook. 
for increasing their pledge from $5 to $10 a month. You're cooking up something special. <laughs> <laughs> You're allowing us to keep cooking up something special. Yeah. All ollieing us. Uh, ollieing us. Um, this is getting sad. Kicking off our trash queen section. We've got a lot of trash to send out this time, folks. Julie uh-huh. Arrington. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ooh, we're going to Arrington on the side of <laughs> yes, of caution, and send you something non-perishable. Mm-hmm. I never mm-hmm. send anything perishable. I know that's no. what she's saying. Also, shout out to Lizzie Richards. You will be richer with trash queen <laughs> products soon enough. And Linda Mushy, mushy. Well, I'm not going I'm to send anything perishable, so your shipment won't be mushy when it arrives. Nothing mushy. <laughs> I don't want a gushy, but we love Yo. you. <laughs> we love you so mushy. Oh. <laughs> Ooh. Good one. Curtis, you're my boy, Blue Gunderson. <laughs> We're going to send you some real special trash, and I don't mm-hmm. know what that's going to be. It might be hair off of one of Lucy's cats. Oh, well, uh, Lucy had a cat blue. named Blue. It might mm-hmm. be a, her skeletal remains. Some remains <laughs> of oh, the late no. great Blue. I'm looking at my box of perishable. I'm looking at it's my box perishable. of available trash right now. As long as it's mummified, it's not perishable. I'll bring more trash for you to New York. Just what I need in my if home is more trash from Kenyon. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out to Jordan Holbert. You keep this Holbert operation going. Ha! Amazing. <laughs> that was terrible. <laughs> oh, wow. Kelly Gamble, you are donating at $25 a month, which means you will be getting a fucking patriarchy wine glass and a tote bag in yes. the mail. Oh, mm-hmm. they go so well together. And Virginia Avila, is this her gal? <gasps> She's the pooper. Who, yeah. The Tesla who pooper. Recommended the Tesla, Tesla pooper. pooper. Oh, and yep. as promised, donating at $50 a month. So you've provided this amazing Tesla pooper anecdote, but you also get to pick a future case and or wine, assuming we can actually procure it and or topic. Topic. Yeah. So you're a winner, winner, chicken dinner, Virginia Avila. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Go celebrate by pooping on a Tesla. <laughs> <laughs> and shout out to Allison Perkis, who made a $25 once-off donation via mm-hmm. our online store, wineandcrimepodcast.bigcartel.com. Mm-hmm. And Allison has a special me- message, and it goes like this, quote, <clears throat> Happy belated, sorry we suck, birthday to the amazing Alicia Laz. We love you so much and are proud of the intelligent, strong, independent woman you have woman. grown t- woman you have grown to be. Your gals, the pepperoni pizza squad. Oh, oh my god, let me cutest. in that squad. I know. Let I know. Let me in that squad. squad Do you goals. have jackets? Fucking goals. Oh, like pink lady jackets, but they have pizza yes. logos on them? <laughs> yes. Pizza lady jackets. Please, can I be your friend? <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
All right. And last but not least, second to last but not least, Jason Leesman. What did we do to oh, deserve it? Jason is very active in the Not a Witch, but Totally yes. a Witch f- uh, Facebook happy hour runoff group and i mm-hmm. love oh yeah jason's very a big fan on social media we love him well jason mm. gave a 150 dollar once-off donation <gasps> holy balls thank you jason we bow at your feet jason you are totally a witch in the best uh-huh. way my liege my liege my warlock i kiss your robes oh god <laughs> um and of course <laughs> if you're traumatized by what i just said check out our special 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 sponsor talkspace and you can get 45 bucks off your first month by going to talkspace.com and using promo code gals treat your brain trade it all right, we'll okay, see you bye next bye. week. We love you. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Wine and Crime. Our cover art is by Kali Yip. Music by Phil Young and Corey Wendell. Check out our website and blog at wineandcrimepodcast.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at wineandcrimepod. If you have wine recommendations or creepy true crime stories to share, email us at wineandcrimepodcast at gmail.com. Episodes are available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, basically wherever you get your podcasts. More importantly, if you like the show, please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. It really is the best way to spread the word. We are a totally independent show, so if you'd like to support us and get a shout-out on air... Visit our Patreon page to keep this podcast and the wine flowing. Cheers. Sunday. 911 emergency. This wasn't an ordinary missing persons case. Breaking news from the National Hurricane. All the rain in the forecast created the opportunity for the perfect crime. Oh my goodness, it's a category four hurricane. You can't stop storms from coming. Heavy rain is going to wash away potential evidence. Weather can hide the truth, but it can also reveal the truth. The Weather Channel's all new television true crime series, Storm of Suspicion. Watch new episodes every Sunday night at 8, 7 central. The weather never lies. That's Storm of Suspicion on the Weather Channel, Sunday nights at 8, 7 central.